Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff, Max Linsky. Good morning. Hey, you guys. How you guys doing? Monday morning. World Cup fever around here. Can't stop thinking about it. It's right around the corner. Who do we have on the show this week, Max? I don't know, man. Who do we have? Wesley Morris from Grantland. Um, Wesley Morris is the uh, film reviewer for Grantland, or movie writer, I would say, for Grantland. Yeah, they don't um, like the term critic over there. Um, was previously with the Boston Globe where I believe he won a Pulitzer Prize for Pulitzer. criticism. Um, and he's one of my favorite film writers uh, out there. I um, think it's Pulitzer. Pulitzer? Yeah, okay. it's like pull. Okay, okay good. I'm going to keep that in mind next time I meet <laughs> someone who's won one. Uh, I'm a fool of myself. I feel like we have some sponsors. Aaron, who who uh, who is the first Warby one? Parker. Warby Parker. They make great eyewear. Summer is here. I love their sunglasses. I bike to work in a pair today. If you go to warbyparker.com slash longform, you'll get free expedited shipping. They'll send you some glasses. You'll pick the ones you like. It's going to go great. This is not a lie. I put uh, Warby Parker sunglasses on my dog this weekend, and it looked uh, cute. Did you take a photo? Did you I post did. it? It's a cute dog. It's a cute dog. Everybody cute check sunglasses. that out. We have another sponsor. Who is it? It's Tiny Letter. It's a great way to send an email newsletter. It's done by the good people in MailChimp. Every week I'm seeing new Tiny Letters. They're all fantastic. If you want to start one, tinyletter.com. And now, check out Aaron Lammer interviewing Wesley Morris. Welcome, Wesley Morris. Hi. Um, How are you? I'm good. Where are you coming from? Uh, well, it's, <laughs> um, I didn't realize I, that was going to be such a loaded question. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. I'm coming from a publisher meeting. Oh, okay. Can you talk about it or can you not talk about it? I don't think I can talk about it. Okay. I mean, I can, you should never have me back to talk about it, but I mean, I can tell you later. I mean, I, I would, uh, we can infer from it being a publisher meeting that it's related to publishing something. Yes. So that's, that's, yes. A, that's a nice yes. preview. It's uh, very funny that I came from that to this but I, I actually did. when we were trying to schedule this um, you you were like well this is when I have a, a screening and it just flashed in my mind for the first time that you probably spend like a large portion of your life scheduling around movie screenings so yeah. I, I'm kind of interested what like what's a week in your your life like as a as a viewer and putting together um, your like do you do a one one piece a week or multiple pieces a week? Uh, I do a several pieces a week yeah. mostly you reliably on Fridays and then semi- I was going to say you have your your kind of like a column on Fridays yes. and then sporadically popping around. Yeah. For and the then semi regularly the on usually on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. So what what's your film watching schedule for a given week like? Uh, it's it depends. I mean, I just got back from Cannes yep. where I was watching four movies a day for 12 days. Um, and now. In the normal world, I want to catch up on all the things that I didn't see. Right. Since I've been gone. 
And so I'm probably on, not today, but uh, the rest of the week, probably three movies a week. Um, so let's talk about your, your history as a, as a movie watcher. Okay. Were you, as, like when you were a kid, were you like a, a movie kid? Were you uh, like the, 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 the film obsessed kid? Yeah, I wonder a lot about that because um, I wasn't a nerd about it. Mm. I grew up poor in Philadelphia. My parents didn't have a lot of money. My mom, well, my parents were divorced. My mom raised me by herself. And one of the things that we did as a family was watch movies on TV. Mm. And on we, we got a VCR one year and that was a year. That was the, we got a VCR and, a, and, some, and two video store memberships. One to Blockbuster and the other one to West Coast Video. I don't know if that means anything. What to you. West Coast Video in Philadelphia? Yeah, I, no, I'm uh, that didn't. I'm I'm from uh, Berkeley, California. We did not have West Coast. Oh. We had some of some other uh, intriguing chains, <laughs> several of which I worked at. But so okay, so you were you were a poor kid and you watched a lot on TV. What 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 were you drawn to as a kid? Whatever my mom had on. I mean, oh. and then you know it that that kind of movie watching informs you about somebody else's movie values. Mm -hmm. So I grew up basically with my mother's movie values and they were, a lot of them involved the movies that she watched when she was a kid. My mother was born in 1948 Mm. and she grew up watching a lot of the things that she would have seen when she was a girl, like mostly things from the forties that would have re-aired on on television um like betty davis movies and greer garson movies and um a lot of those great female stars from the 40s and the 30s i didn't know they were douglas sirk movies they were just movies that had lana turner and uh jane weinman uh and carrie Gray. i mean see what we i didn't know what i was watching when i was watching and i just they made an impression on me those movies you had a better life than i did my mother did the same thing except it was renting movies when i was sick and she was seems to have gravitated towards like sort of dated counterculture movies so like she would always get me bananas <laughs> and take the money and run which are two movies full of references that mean nothing now it's like oh some good castro humor <laughs> <laughs> um Okay, so you you were you were watching the stuff, and at what point did you start thinking critically about movies and wanting to write about them? When I started watching the movies that your mom made you watch. Oh, really? Interesting. Because how did those come to you? I just was curious. I was a guy. The thing about the video store, and I'm only saying this because it is actually experientially true. I'm not saying this as a nostalgist or anything, as I'm not. And I I would love to hear a person who grew up without video stores sort of explain their experience of how right. they choose the movies they watch. But so much of anybody who, who's been to a video store can, can tell the same story about how they arrived at getting the box to the counter. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I've never thought about this before, but I have probably, I probably spent a 10th of my childhood deciding what to watch oh god it's such a and the buyer's remorse can be so could be so strong. i never had buyer's remorse oh, though because i life. spent so much time choosing oh uh, see i had impatient parents so i had to make oh, the spot yeah, call see, and then live with it should have had a single mom yeah who had other stuff to do besides <laughs> wait for you to pick a video yeah just go pick the video i'm not i'll be here when you get back oh see i was always there with my parents oh no my i never went to the video store with my mother just never 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 she it got to a point where like she would watch what i brought home 
she would, you know, she'd be curious about what I'd bring home. I would, I would love, I can't ask her now cause she's, she's dead, but I, I was always sort of, I never remembered to ask her cause we didn't have a terribly sentimental relationship. We were just buddies. Yeah. So I never got, we never got terribly reflexive about things, but I always wonder now like what she was thinking about me bringing like what what did she want me to bring like she never complained well once she turned off my better blues with my uncle my uncle made her turn it off yeah um we rented that once and he was just so obsessive like semi devout muslim but you know I could tell you some stories about what a walking contradiction. Like Mo Blues is like no harsh and controversial. But there's a lot of fucking cursing and fucking in that movie. Yeah, and like to be what he at the time. I mean, he was a adult man. Yeah, and I was what I was maybe I was not even I was maybe thirteen. Um, maybe thirteen watching that with my mom and my uncle and my sister. And, you know, he just was like, this is enough. Turn this off. And so my mother, I think that she got talked into objecting to it mm. and not liking Spike Lee as a result. But that didn't happen for me. Like, I remained loyal and, and, and devout. But what happens when you, like, you know, you turn the corner and you're bringing home Woody Allen movies? Oh, so... Well, nothing. You mean to me and you know, psychological? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, like, what, what, what were you thinking, sort of, about yourself as a moviegoer? What's it like to watch those with your mom? Uh well, you get to see the world. I mean, it's. I mean, it's funny. I I read a lot of books when I was a kid. I watched a lot of movies and I read a lot of comic books. I didn't really do a lot of playing with other kids, and I wasn't like weird i mean i had friends i was popular enough um people seemed to like me um more or less i wasn't a weird kid i was pretty normal Mm -hmm. i grew up in a really poor neighborhood and to be able to see and i went to a boarding school that you know that also allowed me that required me to stay there for long periods of time before i could go back home um, so it wasn't like a, it was also in Philadelphia, but it was, it had an interesting, weird mm. setup. So you would be in Philadelphia at boarding school, but you would, couldn't go home right. during that period. Right. Oh, interesting. And so, you know, the movies just became a very appealing window onto a lot of different worlds. And all of those worlds were different from either the neighborhood I was living in. And it wasn't like, I didn't live in like, a, like the stereotypical movie bad neighborhood it just was poor it wasn't like there weren't guns or you know drive-bys or anything stupid like that it was just you know there wasn't a lot to do yeah and so the movies were a really good thing to do and books were a really good thing to do i mean a lot of the books i was reading and a lot of the movies i was watching i probably didn't understand what ultimately was going on in them but they were visually interesting and they didn't look like anything that i was living on a day-to-day basis and you know a lot of the a lot of the things that writers were writing about were really interesting to me and i didn't think i would ever experience those um and so seeing a movie like bananas for instance or sleeper was the first of those movies yeah definitely yeah and that was like whoa this is like, I mean, for me, this is going to be funny, but like, it was like an episode of the monkeys. I remember thinking that this is like, this is like the monkeys but with this nerdy guy. And yeah. like, I had a crush on at least three of the monkeys and felt nothing for Woody Allen. So it was this really interesting, like new space to watch shenanigans occur with a guy that I, 
how is this guy in a movie? And oh my God, he's in another movie? Yeah. And, and, and he's th- in and another movie? This guy is considered like a great artist of our right. time. But I didn't know that until oh, okay. until much, not much later, but until I was maybe in high school. I saw Sleeper when I was maybe 10. Mm. And it was like a cartoon to me. It was like a live action cartoon. I mean, I Mel Brooks movies were the same way. I didn't know they were Mel. I came to understand they were Mel Brooks movies. Um, but these are movies my mother really had no interest in. And I was free to sort of explore whatever I wanted to explore. She let me, I was free to go to R-rated movies by myself. Um, and, you know, that was, a. I don't know what it's like now to be, you know, 12, 13, 14. I feel like the stimuli is so great. Like the, the, like the movies are like the least of it now. You know, if you've got like a phone and you've got the internet, like nothing. Yeah, no, nothing. You're you're not gonna buy. I mean, I remember I we we snuck in to see uh, kids mm, when I was like 13, and that was like the biggest taboo to to go see it. Now I'm like hardcore pornography at your fingertips. You can live, kids. (laughs) Yeah. Um. I mean, I'm looking forward to all of the sort of cultural histories that get done with kids who grew up with the technology that exists now because it's got to be really interesting how they'll remember experiencing things in 15 years. Like the way that I am like sitting here remembering what it was like to see bananas and how, or, or sleeper and how blown my mind was. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, Woody Allen's a really interesting filmmaker to me because he was one of the first directors that I recognized to, to whom I could apply a term like autourism. Mm-hmm. And, he was obviously intelligent in a way that I could understand and it spoke to me. There's that great scene in Annie Hall where he brings out Marshall McLuhan. Yeah. And that was mind blowing to me. That was like, I did not even know you could do that. He just brought this dude out and then he just went away again. I didn't know who Marshall McLuhan was, but that, that was so amazing to me and that he could do all of these great tricks. He meant that Manhattan was entirely in black and white was shocking to me and that that whole prelude uh with the gershwin stuff was also amazing to me every time i watch manhattan now i'm just like wow i'd still it still surprises me and it's still i think everybody might have a handful of books or movies that they happily return to because they honestly don't remember the plot you just remember the sort of the mood or the experience um and I, I, I love that. And a lot of that has to do in some ways with experiencing things when you're young because you don't understand everything. And so there's no opportunity for a movie to occupy some sort of primal space. So every time you go back to it, it's new again. You know, it didn't it wasn't formative, but it was in some way experiential. I mean, this is sounding somewhat Proust, Proustian a bit, but it doesn't recall a specific thing for me. But it is like, oh, Manhattan is on. This takes me back to a time when I didn't know what Manhattan was about. And and, and in going back to that time, in being transported back to that time, I suddenly don't remember having ever watched it. It's like I'm watching it for the first time again. I have that experience consistently with Taxi Driver. Mm, that's another Where game. I remember watching that I when have I was the a same teenager thing, yeah. and I was like, there's an underage prostitute in this movie. Yeah, that just didn't compute with me the yeah. first time I read it. Like the first time I watched it. Like there's certain things that you you just can pass over because your brain doesn't quite want to take them the. The political campaign in that movie I always forget about, and that's like 
it's nobody ever talks about it. I mean, every time I watch that movie, I am shocked by the violence and I am shocked by it's not even allegory. It is I am shocked by the sort of the the caution that it that it's trying to sound societally. Scorsese has made one other movie that is that has gotten to that for me. Uh, that sort of like oh, the energy this guy has and his ability to sort of use it to do these great things. I think Scorsese between 76 and 86 or maybe maybe up to the passion of the Christ before he had ascend before he had achieved, you know, maximal Scorsese-ness. Yeah. Is way more interesting to me than Scorsese before Taxi Driver probably obviously. And then way more interesting than Scorsese after Passion of the Christ. I I totally agree. I think that 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 period for him is just so I mean, I don't know if he was still on drugs at that point, but there is a drugginess to those movies that also really like can't comedy after hours really connects with the way the world felt like it was from 1976 to 1988. And, you know, I was barely alive during some of that stuff, but it just, it just crackles with a, with a kind of life. And I feel the same way about um, talking about things that seem new. Every time you see them, I feel that way about the Godard movies that I had watched for the first time when I was young and just like walking around the video store looking for stuff um, and just putting interesting looking boxes on the counter. Like contempt is one of the first movies I saw. And that was, I can watch that movie every day because it is a different movie. Every time I watch it, have you seen that? I I have. The breathless was the first one I saw and breathless had like a very profound effect on me because I saw it when I was like 17 I, was it Gene Seberg that made an impression on you, or like the part that I remember the most is the end parts where she's betrayed him at the end, mm. and he's kind of like, "Oh, it was all worth it for our, you know, this sort of like existential, like, you know, destroying yourself for like this like woman kind of like thing." It just it had like a very romantic effect on me when mm. I saw it. I mm. thought it was like very cool. That's like way cooler than movies I see now. But I always wonder about the sort of self-editing effect, which is like, so me and you are sitting here and we're talking about like Taxi Driver. We're talking about Godard. There was also a whole raft of movies that had a profound effect on me when I was a teenager that I think are terrible now. Oh, there's so many of those. And I kind of question like some of my like you nostalgia can't. because you I can't. because no because I'm like maybe I didn't even really like Breathless that much. Maybe I oh, now I feel that way. Saying. Like I remember being blown away by. Um, suburbia, suburbia. It was oh, a Richard sure, Linklater, yeah. like yeah, yeah. sort of a mall punk kind of. Bogosian wrote that. Eric. Bogosian yes, it's a bit based that. on his play. Yeah. It's terrible. Yes, it's bad. Definitely as profound effect on me as Taxi Driver. Mm. Do you have like a counter counter viewing? Experience? Um, I'm going to list some movies, and some of them are actually truly very good. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. I'm listing them because I saw them and they really affected me. Fatal Attraction. I saw that movie five times in the theater. I was 11. I don't know why that movie affected me the way that it did, but it really, I've seen it as an adult and it's a really good, well-constructed thriller that if it had come out, if it came out tomorrow would be just as big a hit as it would be today, as it was in 1987. Sorry. But there's something about that movie, there's something about the sex in that movie 
it's really amazing sex. And you would never see Michael Douglas and Glenn Close fucking in 2014. You just wouldn't see it. You might actually, I mean, and I'll give the movies credit for this. You might see Bradley Cooper and Amy Adams fucking like that in 2014, but you would never see those two people in Fatal Attraction. They wouldn't go near Fatal Attraction. And in 1987, movies were still just interesting enough to get a major movie star like Michael Douglas was at that exact moment. And that was when Michael Douglas was like at his peak. Um, and, a, and an actress who was like basically at that point kind of an up and coming star in Glenn Close. I don't know that Paramount would make that movie today. And I don't think they would make it with either of the endings, like the famous that movie, the ending that got released or the the original ending where Michael Douglas goes to jail. Um, broadcast News, Tequila Sunrise, um, Heathers. Um, you know what movie really fucked me up? Misery. I really love that woman. I knew, I understood, my mother worked with mentally ill people. Yeah. I recognized her to be mentally ill. I don't think that Barry Sonnenfeld and maybe even Stephen King, I never read his, I never read the book. And William Goldman wrote the screenplay and the screenplay is great. But I don't think any of them understand that they know she's crazy, but I think that crazy sort of in their minds, because they're all men, I don't think they understand the way in which she actually, Kathy Bates' performance, and I, it, and it's of, of course she won the Oscar, but it's so interesting, like that that actors picked up on what a great piece of acting this was, because it transcends what's on the page. Nothing on the page in any way allows you to sympathize with her. They cast an actress who was way better than all of the material. And all of the all of the setup. And the murder sequence in that movie, I just sat there and I sobbed for I mean, I sat there for well, they were sweeping the theater and I was still crying. And I was I would have been that was nineteen ninety. I would have been fourteen when that movie came out. It was like watching somebody kill your mom, you know, and like get pleasure out of killing your mom. But it's a really I also love Pop Boiler. You know, like I love, that's my favorite kind of movie is a trashy thriller. Hey, quick word from our sponsor, Warby Parker. Uh, Summer is upon us and you need some sunglasses, as I do. Uh, You could get those cheap knockoffs from Canal Street that you normally get, or you could get a beautiful, high-quality pair of vintage-inspired Warby Parker glasses for a mere $145. That's with prescription lenses. If you want to get their regular glasses, it's only $95. So let me tell you a little bit how it works. You're going to go on their website. You're going to pick out some stuff that looks interesting to you. They will mail them to you. You try them on, send back the send them back. It's all prepaid and everything. If you don't like them, no problem. If you like them, you can order them. They'll be at your house within 10 business days. However, for our listeners, we have a very, very special deal for three-day expedited shipping if you go to warbyparker.com slash longform. That's warbyparker.com slash longform. You get three-day shipping, and you will help support this show. It really matters to us. It's how we pay the bills. Warby Parker has been supporting us from the very beginning. Give their glasses a try. I think you're going to like them. Um, Here I am back with Wesley Morris. You know what is a genre of movie that has all but disappeared is mysteries. I was watching Clute a couple nights ago. I mean, come on. 
there's no movie that even has a, any sort of a structure at all like that, where there's like a like a mystery that is progressively solved through the movie without any outbursts of violence. Yeah. So, but I'm interested. So you have this this strong experience watching Misery, 14 years old. At what point did you say, I'm going to take these strong emotional reactions and try to write about them or try and put them into something that I could communicate with someone else? Never. <laughs> I was just thinking about this. I have been thinking about it because I'm, I got an assignment when I was in the eighth grade to write a book review of a movie based on a book that we read. It was April Morning, this Revolutionary War Hallmark Hall of Fame production. I know something about what I just said is false. <laughs> um, I believe they're actually both true. It was Rip Torn and um, Chad Lowe and somebody else who's the actual star um, who's not the other two. Anyway, I hated it. It was terrible. And so I wound up writing a film review. And the the, the teacher who read it was surprised that I had decided to have an opinion rather than to demonstrate having read the book and watched the movie and said, hey, this is really good. You should keep doing it. You should keep writing about movies and books and whatever. And I had never thought about doing that. I didn't even know you could. Do I mean, I read that I was a newspaper reader as a kid, but I didn't read the film reviews thinking that I too could be a film critic. I knew when I wrote what I wrote that I was doing what at the time, you know, my local movie critics were doing, which at that time were Desmond Ryan, uh, Stephen Ray, and Kerry Rickey and Gary Thompson. They were all those three wrote for the Inquirer, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and then Gary Thompson was the Daily News critic. And those are the three people, the four people I read. I didn't know anything about movie criti criticism beyond that. And you know, I watched uh, Siskel and Ebert religiously, but the idea that I could do it was totally lost on me. But then he said that, and I was like, oh guess maybe I can do this. And so I was, we had a newspaper. I did film reviews for the for my high school newspaper. And when I got to Yale, I did film reviews for the Yale Daily News. Um, I worked at the Chronicle for a while. So you're writing at all these levels. Have you gone back and looked at like high school reviews you wrote? No, but I can remember lines from some of them and they haunt me. Like every <laughs> once in a while, I'll think, I'll hear a word that I used and was like, a lot of my early writing involved me using words that I just learned. Ah, uh, gotcha. The reason I brought up the the Chronicle was just to sit, to find out from you whether they had what the Inquirer and the Daily News had, which was in, in, in the late, in the early 90s, they wanted to make an effort to try to get younger readers and hook them till they were older readers. And one of the ways they did that was to have these pullout sections full of young writers, kind of like what NPR does mm. with these uh, with these grants and they have these sort of programs, or not just NPR, but like these programs where NPR winds up using the reporting yeah. of, of young of young reporters. They did the same thing, the, the, the Inquirer and the Daily News. They had a thing called Yo, Yo Fresh Ink. That was where I started writing reviews yeah. weekly reviews and some of the things i wrote i'm very embarrassed by i would i don't know if i would ever try to read them but i remember some things i wrote and it's embarrassing but for me it was actually i was learning words and i wanted to try to use them and the editors there didn't always try to stop me they did a lot though they really tried to save me for myself wow you've been writing reviews for over 20 years now then i've been writing reviews yeah yeah. So what, at what point did someone say, hey, you, you, you can do better than that? Like at what point did you, you start sort of consciously working on 
being a professional critic and, and, and being edited and that kind of stuff. You know, it's, I, I never, I mean, <laughs> I, I often get asked to go to like middle schools and high schools and, um, some college classes and inevitably someone will ask me how I got started. And yeah. I used to love telling the story cause it was funny, but it's not, I don't find it funny anymore. I kind of, I find it kind of depressing because it really is like a Horatio Alger story. I mean, it, without any of the work that, that goes on in a Horatio Alger story, like all of the serendipity, none of the work, everything that has happened to me. And people don't like it when I say this, cause it, it like seems to, it sounds like I'm, I'm being either falsely modest or assuming that like my talent doesn't matter. Like, let's just assume that I'm talented. Let's assume that I'm good at, at writing about movies. There are a lot of people who are good at things who never get to do the thing that they're good at in a way that shows off how good they are at their jobs. So we understand that, right? I was one of the like lucky, 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 lucky people who was in the right, whose resume or whose name was in the on the right desk or in the on the right person's tongue at the right moment. And I that's how I got from my little startup in Boston to San Francisco to I came to New York for a year and you know had nothing but bad luck and then my luck changed just like that because somebody mentioned my name to someone else and I wound up in Boston. And so the only thing I can say of any use when people ask me like how this how did you how did you get to where you are all I can say is I never stopped believing that I was good at what I did I mean I never tried to sell people on my being good it was just you know I believe in myself I think I'm good at what I do and I think I don't doubt that I mean I have other doubts but I don't doubt the quality of my I don't doubt my talent I don't doubt how my brain works and that I have a good brain um but those are things, those are the only things I can really control. Right. And I think that the thing that makes me sad to tell how I, to tell the full story of how I got to where I am, because there's a funnier version of this story, but it, the reason I can't laugh at it anymore is because. By all means, tell the less entertaining one on the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the, the it's just longer and it yeah. really isn't, I could really, I used to be really able to like perform that story so that it sounded like. What, what has taken the wind out of the sails of that story for you? Just reality. The fact that it could never happen to anybody anymore. Huh. Because? Because I don't think that newspapers are looking for stars in the way that they were looking for like young stars 15 years ago. I'm not saying that they're not open to finding those people, but I mean, yeah. I think there was a real interest in taking risks on people and talent. And I don't think that a lot of places can even afford to take risks with the people they have. You know, I mean, I think journalism is really good in this country and is, is as good as it as it ever has been. Agreed. I think it's coming from all kinds of places. And I think that there are people who there are there are people who run newspapers now and in some ways in some magazines. I don't think they would hire me now. There are people Why? because they would need a film critic. Mm. I can write about lots of other things just as well. And I don't think they'd want any of that stuff either. Mm. I think, you know, I've had conversations with, with places that have wanted to hire me 
that have wanted me to do what I'm doing, like to do some of the sports writing I do and to do some of the popular culture writing that I do in the, in this sort of, um, integrated way as opposed to doing it as a sort of beat reviewer, um, to do the at large criticism. But the reality is that there is no place, there'd be no place for me to do that at most places. And a place can say that, and but I think that you'd run up against, I don't know, maybe I'm imagining this, maybe this isn't true, but I get a sense that there is, everybody wants good people and talented people. That's not my point. My point is that I think that the talent search is the sort of looking for interesting new people and new voices and, and people with interesting points of view has changed mostly because I think there are people, those people are sort of doing their own things on their blogs and that mm. sort of thing. I think that there is a way in which the internet has, has sort of democratized a lot of that sort of thing. And so that there is a lot, there are a lot of people who sort of resist those sort of structural corporate seeming models that a newspaper would represent. I also just think that there's there are fewer places for a talented person to go and those those places that remain wouldn't know what to do with certain kinds of talent. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But I'm interested in sort of knowing okay, knowing that you got that that nod, that sort of that that first serendipitous push or that third serendipitous push, how have you developed over like let's well, not the last twenty years, but like over the last decade, how how has your reviewing changed? I mean, you now are one of the most read film voices in the country, I think, or at least among a, um, a certain audience. What have you changed about what you what you do? Um, I no longer use words I just learned in what <laughs> I write. Yeah. Um, I I mean I I've never read the high school stuff, but every once in a while. A movie will come up that I know I reviewed when I was in San Francisco, yeah. and I'll go back and read the review. I don't read a lot of what I write, but every once in a while, I am curious about like how different me in 1999 is versus how I'm different in 2013 and 14. Yeah, and I am shocked. This is why I would never get hired. The version of me that existed then would never get hired now because I, I was just throwing everything. At the at the screen, you know what I mean. I was I was just doing everything. I was I was kind of pompous. Not I wasn't pompous. I was I was enthusiastic, and I was enthusiastic toward actors and directors and things I thought were bullshit. I I the really interesting thing for me was how much I wanted to be other people when I was starting out. Um, I wanted to be Jim Hoberman. I wanted to be Jessica Winter and Dennis Lim, all those Village Voice guys. Um, I really, Manola Dargis, when she was at LA Weekly, I really wanted to write like her. Um, I really wanted to write like Herbert Mouchamp. I wanted to write like all of these people who had nothing to do. I wanted to write like Dave Eggers. When I I got my job when Heartbreak, uh, Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius came out. And I've you should start keeping track when people come on this show of yeah. a certain age. How much, like, whether that book meant anything to them and, like, whether it made them want to write a certain way. McSweeney's and that book, I wanted to write like that. Yeah, I totally understand. And I think a lot of people wanted to write like that, and it became a problem. But I, 
it wasn't who I was. But when I was when I was reviewing movies at the San Francisco Chronicle and in the Examiner, I started at the Examiner, by the way. I started at the Examiner in '99, and then Hearst bought the Chronicle and merged the staffs. So I was a fit. I be, my career started really at the Examiner, um, and everybody there was great, and I had a great time. I probably read your film, one of your film reviews. I know that was my senior year of high school. Bay Area. Yeah, I've seen I mean, a lot of movies. That there. was I was out of college for a year. I it the thing that's different between now and then is that I know who I am. Like I don't I now don't know how to write like other people. I only know how to write like, like whatever comes into my brain. But it was amazing how much I was trying to write like so many different people in in you know the village voice and Dave Eggers and and you know certain people at the times like when Tony Scott started writing at the times too, AO Scott. I I wanted to like write as importantly as those people seemed to write to me, they were important to me, and I thought their writing was really important. Yeah, and and Nancy Franklin was somebody else who I wanted to be. Like, I mean, all of these people, I just, I, I wanted to sort of absorb what I loved about them. But it was really, I spent days trying to get out of writing reviews, trying to get out of of out of their voice leaping from voice to voice to voice hoping that I would land on whoever it was I was supposed to be I was 23 when you found that that your own voice like did you know like did you know oh I've got it now or is it a slowly evolving process no no I have no eureka moment I just know that that now I don't have that problem I'm interested in when I read your reviews now like I um, I went back and sort of read a annotated selection of your reviews from the last year and I noticed that pretty clearly, like, okay, here are reviews I read. It, or the 12 Years a Slave review. Mm-hmm. I read the Fruitvale Station review. Mm-hmm. I went, okay, when when I read the Fruitvale Station uh, review, I was like, this is a black man reviewing this this movie. Very clear. Do you, do you feel like when you are reviewing movies that are, say, not by a black director, do you feel like race is a central rubric through which you write movie reviews? Um, yes. And at, I mean, what, at what point did you, did you make that like part of what you did? I think maybe that's the difference between me and everybody I just listed to you. That was, that was my attempt to, um, put words in your mouth when you said your voice. I was like, okay, yeah. that's the voice I hear. I mean, it's not, I mean, well, it's funny cause I don't write about race with every review. Do you know what I mean? Like it sure. doesn't come up a lot, but it's a subject. I mean, race is important to me. Gender is important to me. I think like. I'm a I politics are important to me like social politics are really important to me. Yeah. I I feel a more I feel like there's a sort of morality to movie making. Yeah. And I think that whether movies know it or not, they are they are part of a conversation about how we live our lives. Absolutely. Intentionality means nothing to me. I don't really care about that. It's important sometimes, but for the most part, I don't take it into consideration when I'm when I'm reviewing. Yeah. But race is one of those things that I think but when I started writing about it in a real way, I got nervous that I was going to be the person who owned, who wrote about race. And I think that anybody, any black person who writes about race in the same way that women who write about feminism or gender issues, they get nervous that you're going to that's all you'll write about. Um it's funny you had Alice Gregory on mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about how 
she doesn't write anything that would make someplace want to hire her to do one thing. Yeah. And I feel like with me, it's a little bit the opposite where like, there's a, there's a moment in, do you remember, did you, did you ever see Barton Fink? Absolutely. There's a moment in Barton Fink where the, the sort of fake Louis B. Mayer guy, the Michael Lerner character is like, we got to get that Barton Fink in here. We need that, we need that Barton Fink feeling. (laughs) I feel like with me, I don't know if anybody's saying they want the feeling that I give them, but I think that there's a way in which there are some people who write about race. And I think, you know, obviously Ta-Nehisi Coates is like the, you know, ner plus ultra yeah. in the minds of a lot of editors and, and other writers as of, of someone who, I mean, I know he's been here and has talked about which I think some of this I may be blowing the gun. I think we're going to try and get him back on to talk about his most recent piece. Right. So I mean, preview for everyone at home. He has embraced it because, you know, A, he's really good at it, and B, you know, he's dedicated his sort of intellectual life to it. Um, I also want to write about other things, and I want to write about race in a... a, I'm not... You know, it's funny. This is the thing about me and race in movies and popular culture in general. I'm not looking to write about race, but race... Racial things keep happening. And it's kind of like, in some ways, I'm a reporter, too. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, reporter I'm on sitting, American society. I'm sitting at my desk, minding my business, and somebody goes and gets shot. Right. I have to go out and now cover the shooting. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't ask for that person to get shot. I didn't will it to happen. But there it is. There's a person shot. And now I have to go, like, do some crime reporting. Like, that is what writing about race and popular culture is like for me. It is crime reporting. It is not me looking for an agenda when I go to the movies. Like, I only want to watch this movie and write about race. It is, fuck you, I wanted to watch a movie, and now I got to deal with all this race shit. Fuck you. But I feel a moral responsibility to report a crime having been committed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that is what I am sort of forced to do over and over again, whether a movie is about race or whether it is racist. Um, and it can be wearying because I don't know, especially at a, at a daily newspaper where I think a lot of people have been conditioned over the years to just expect to be told by a critic whether or not the thing under consideration is just good or bad. And they whether are expecting they should... a, a man in a seat who can either uh, jump out clapping or fall asleep. Right. We should talk about the philosophical morality of the clapping man yeah. some other time. Yes. but. That I hated that. I hated having to apply that to things, especially something like 12 Years a Slave, right? Yeah. Why the fuck is that guy jumping out of it? <laughs> Slavery! Oh my God! It's yeah, just, right. That's not the right response. It's sort of like when um, someone, there's a death announcement on Facebook and people are unsure what like means. <laughs> like, like this. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's the same problem. We've institutionalized those right. kind of actions right i mean the clapping man i tried to get rid of him by the way i mean i nobody i've never said this out loud but he's unkillable trust me who's who's still alive with the chronicle and who's not yeah i'm not there anymore (laughs) he will outlast us all the the clapping man is still there and you know i write a lot about women in movies in popular culture too and it just there are things that, that these things do that never cease to shock me, the movies and in, in, in TV and in, in some ways music. I find music way more interesting because way, music is, is a, like popular music is a lot more 
forgiving. And I think that there's a lack of a visual component to that that I makes it maybe makes it a lot safer yeah. to do a lot more integrative things and a lot less. It's just less. It's just fraught in a totally different way. Than, well, and it's than less visual. I mean, simply by budgets alone, sort of what you're seeing in the movie world is quite filtered. In right. music, you're right. like, hey, right. it's all on iTunes. Right. Like, right. it's all fair game. But I'm interested as you moved from the Globe to Grantland. Mm-hmm. When you're writing in that sort of um, race, uh, gender, sexuality, politics nexus, when when it comes to you and yells at you at the office. How much are you thinking about the audiences, the respective audiences of, say, the Globe or Grantland, and where their sort of what their starting point is, what their neutral point is? I mean, is is your audience's expectations important to how you talk about that stuff, or is it a solitary pursuit where you're draw, drawing that all from inside yourself? I mean, when I was at the paper, I kind of didn't. I mean, who knows? I lived in Boston. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like. I mean, I loved living in Boston. It was great. And it's not nearly as racist as people think it is. And it's not definitely not racist in the way that people think it is. Yeah. And the response to pretty much every piece I wrote, every major piece I wrote about race. And sometimes when I would mention something racial in a couple of sentences, it was, you know, the response was pretty intense. But again, like. I the response in that case is letters to the editor letters to the editor letters well at some point email to the yeah. writer um I was there I there was always email to the writer when I was at the globe um but letters to the editor emails directly to me um but again I I kind of I mean I I only at the chronicle actually was I told and this wasn't really a content thing this was just a an approach thing I was told that like I needed to to write in a different way mm. um and that was that was eye-opening that guy that led to a lot of problems there because he didn't do it in the right way but since then no one's really and, until i have an editor of at any level tell me that like i should dial it back or rethink what i'm doing because readers aren't liking it then i, I mean and even then like i don't know what i would like how i would respond to that but who cares what they what people think in some ways? I mean, I'm not I'm not a pundit. I am not like espousing. I mean, I guess I'm espousing some kind of worldview, but it is not it is reasoned and it is reasonable. And I am I am asking popular culture and in a lot of cases art to I'm holding it to account for itself if it isn't and I'm praising things that do sort of ask and, and, and address important questions that surprise me. And you can get, was it good or was it bad from anybody? I mean, you don't even need a person, really. You can get it from Metacritic now. Right. It's like literally not from a person. You don't need a human. You can get an algorithm will tell you whether you should go or not. Like, yeah. that's not my job. That is that is an aspect of my job. But my job, my the job that I want to do and that I believe I've been hired to do is to answer other questions. Like in addition to, I'll tell you whether I liked it or didn't like it. In some cases, I'm not even sure. Like, I mean, I can tell you what things worked about it and what things didn't. And if you want to weigh those things against each other and come to some conclusion, be my guest. I am happy to do those things, do that kind of, of, of criticism. But 
I think that always leads my brain to ask other questions and to hold a movie to account in some ways for what else it is doing because it is doing something else. It is using these properties that we are all familiar with in a lot of ways in daily life um, and turning them into entertainment in most cases. And I like trying to figure out how that's working and whether it's working. It was fun writing about Judd Apatow all the years that Judd Apatow was was a thing. Yeah. And all of the things that sprung from Judd Apatow. I mean, he's a great smart person figure because he taps into these very like human universal things. And I had a good time writing about like the problems with him and the great things about him. Yeah. And there, I mean, he's just, he was just one of those people. And I mean, this wasn't a race thing, although race came up, but I mean, he was a, he was a person who on, at the most fundamental level, he was just making comedies. He just wanted people to laugh. Yeah. But I mean, the things he wanted people to laugh at were really interesting and the places that he didn't want to go and the places that he did want to go. And this entire, this entire corner of, of comedy that he and Jackass helped create were really interesting and fun to, to like to unpack and talk about. But yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, it's just a jackass movie. Yeah. But you can get just a jackass movie from a lot of people. I'd rather I'd rather try to figure out what exactly it is about jackass that is so great and so fun. Do you see though that pendulum like so I very much remember the era the era of um you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, kind of like I give it a 8.6, like, <laughs> um, and that kind of stuff. But when I go on the internet today, and I think this is the most true of serial TV, but that probably means it's coming from movies too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there there are 45 think pieces about. Um, rape in Game of Thrones. Mm. It's almost like we want to talk about rape. Like, let's hope it's like coming up in a in a TV <laughs> show, you know, or um, uh, misogyny in True Detective. Mm-hmm. There's a level to which, past just giving a rating, now I think a lot of the ways that w- people want to talk about these larger political issues or whatever we want to call them is through the lens of pop culture and entertainment. Um, do you I mean, does that worry you going the other direction too? that that we're sort of getting away from the material and just talking about the things we want to talk about? That's a really good question. Or are afraid to talk about no, potentially. That's a, that's a great question. Um, here's what I think. I think that this is exactly what we wanted to happen. We wanted to sort of think about what our TV and our movies and our music and our books are doing. I think that the proliferation of those sorts of pieces and that kind of thinking and that sort of engagement is, is a good thing. I don't think it's bad. I do think in some ways that a lot of people aren't really equipped to do it. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I I think that there are people who feel like it's the moral thing to do to point out the fact that, you know, Madman Madman introduces this Dawn character um played by Tiana Paris and she's Dawn's secretary and it seems like the show is going to devote a seg- a chunk of itself to her and yep. her life. 
And then she doesn't, nothing comes of it. She's just some secretary. But the show, at least for three episodes, makes you think that that's what's going to happen. Yeah. I would love to read a bunch of pieces about what a problem that is or what a problem it isn't. Mm -hmm. The problem for me at some point is that a lot of those pieces are about other people's pieces. Yes. It's like, it's a lot of like breaking news. Like somebody was there, had a thought, published a thought, and then the deluge of, of other thinking is based from that original thought, but only a kernel of what was interesting about that thought remains in the other thinking. Yeah. And the thing that I love reading when the people do in these sort of in these think pieces, you know, I hate I don't like that term. No, I do. do but I. I mean, whatever. It's the term we have. We have no choice. And a lot of it has to do also with having something to say that is either personal or using your authority, your position of authority. Like if you're an Emily Nussbaum or an Andy mm-hmm. Greenwald or, you know, Alessandra Stanley, like if you're if you're if you're one of those people and you have a position from which to say these interesting things, these smart things, you should use it to say them. And if you are a person who, for instance, is a Game of Thrones fan who is tired of the sexual assault on women, I would love to read the sort of somewhat personal piece that like lays a case for why that's a problem. The problem for me is like it the the thing that I think you were asking is the kind of um, crossfire, Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck. Well, I almost know, feel like, like there's a there's a like a punditization of opinion. It's almost like to, when someone like Nussbaum criticism when someone Nussbaum writes about True Detective and she says, "I think it's kind of boring and like." anti-women it's like the line like the sports betting line has been mm. drawn mm-hmm. and now there's going to be some people who are over some people who are going <laughs> under she's like established like what we're going to argue about yeah and people are going to like it's like well i think most people are going uh, are going pro nuts <laughs> I, I'm, I think i'm going i'm going anti you know like and, and i think this, some, this is a great sketch actually and some people and the uh, movies aren't immune i don't want to make it sound like there's only no the TV comic happens. book movie i mean the comic books are I mean, like the object of discourse is not as interesting and as rich as as what you get with a Mad Men or a True Detective or a Game of Thrones. And you don't get to follow for eight years. Right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. don't you? Yeah, oh, it's true. <laughs> if Marvel has its right. Way. I mean, yeah. I think that I am down to my last comic book drop. I, yeah. I mean, I can write about them on a movie to movie basis, but. I think I am spent and I think people are tired of hearing me talk about comic books. Yeah. Like I, I hear from a lot of people who are just like, we get it. They're not as good as the comic books themselves. Yeah. Just let it go. And that is a case where I kind of have to listen because I am tired of Like I actually agree. I am tired of, mm-hmm. of thinking about comic book movies i mean until i get one that has content that's interesting to think about i am tired of thinking about the problem of the comic book movie i think in some ways i am part of a particular kind of problem i'm not answering your actual question because it actually I, I would like to think more about it but it isn't really interesting it's a it's a good problem to have yeah but it, it can also be exasperating i read a lot and a lot of things i 
I really don't read. I think it, and the other thing that's interesting to me is I think the one good thing about the way social media works now is that there is still authority, there are still voices of authority on certain subjects and or on certain incidents. And I think that the good things are the things that people talk about. Or, you know, okay, you know, they're also things that are not good, like, but they're by people, like, I'm thinking about the Anthony Lane, Scarlett Johansson mm-hmm. profile that, like, that had a life well beyond its publication date. And that was something that was a, an author, a, you know, authority figure, Anthony Lane, writing about a very famous person, doing something he doesn't normally do in a way that people were surprised to see him do it. That sort of thing is really interesting to me. Like, I think that the primacy of certain types of critics who have, who in whom you've invested a kind of authority yeah. will still maintain a kind of primacy over the two, the, the two centers. You know, I, I just got to say this, like Emily Nussbaum, shut up. Yeah. Or, you know, um, there are probably better examples of this. I feel like the, the things about like Lena Dunham, for instance, Lena Dunham is somebody who I feel like people are just like, Lightning rod. Yeah, she's a lightning rod, and people just say any old thing about her. There's not a lot of thought. There's not a lot of thought put into the rape thing. Is different for me mm-hmm. on Game of Thrones because yeah. I think it actually produced a lot of interesting writing. Yeah, Lena Dunham, on the other hand, produces very little interesting writing, but a lot of yeah. volume, and nobody's really saying anything interesting about her. I think she is way more interesting. She remains far ahead of everything that's being said about her. She's a lot like Madonna in that way. She is really good at getting out of the way of the conversation and letting the conversation happen around her and doing what she wants to do regardless of what people will say about her. And I think in some ways, I'm hoping in some ways that changes the discourse around certain stars and certain mm-hmm. artists and creative people who are, they're not critic proof, but they are definitely like cattiness proof or like pundit proof or something. It's something that comes up a lot when you see writing about like Kanye West where you're like, Oh yeah, there's another is, good did, example. Did, yeah. Um, do you, are you really um, uh, under the impression that this person is unaware that they did this, that, the, that this would be an effect <laughs> of the, this art they created, you know? But this is why, I mean, th- this is where I think I'm saying this because this is how my brain works. I'm not saying that like I am great, but I'm saying that the thing about it's going to be your Paul quote. I am great. <laughs> the thing about about something like like Kanye West or Lena Dunham or the or the Game of Thrones, the, the sex and sexuality on Game of Thrones or power, sorry, yeah. is I'm going to assume that everybody's going to write about those things. Yeah. The question for me is, and the people that I love reading. I mean, there are people I love reading who can go right into the thing and just be like, this thing is this. And this is why, this is what it is, and I don't like it, and here's why. But in doing that, you really don't have a choice if you're going to do a really good job at it. And it's not going to be, like, super personal. Um, but it can be, it can still have, a, a you know, an aspect of the writer's self in it, beyond voice, um, like experientiality or empiricism or something. The thing that you do beyond that is you tell me like what else is going on with it. Like I am much more interested in like 
bellwethers and you know smoke signals and that sort of thing mm. and like what what is this really pointing to and i think the really best example of like how that goes wrong is what happened last week with those um roger murders of yeah. those women and the you know not all women and the you know yes all women the not all men yeah uh debates that were happening where i would say 80 percent of what i read was totally frivolous and nobody, very few people were getting to the like to the cultural meat of the problem. Well, it's an interesting thing that we've done where we keep saying we need more of a dialogue and we need more of a discourse. And we're now kind of reaching a place where that happens. And I think it's a it's a little bit horrifying. Nobody's saying anything. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like the Michael Sam thing. Same thing. Yeah. Like there's just not a lot of good thinking being done on a lot of these things i mean there are but there's enough being done by the people who should be doing it because it's their job and they're really good at it yeah but everything else is noise to me i mean it's like responding i mean we've just like created more and more places to have comment sections <laughs> do you know what i mean and we've created um primary text that is indistinguishable from a comment section right this is right and so i'm surprised actually that with this proliferation of places to say things yeah. that nobody's really saying anything yeah and i like there's so many people who are doing great work that i think is smart and interesting and they're doing it at like like well-regarded respectable publications but then you know there is a class of independent-minded blog-oriented person who is just as engaged with that stuff and is really seeing... I'm thinking about the guys who do the Mad Men recap. Um, Tom and Lorenzo, I think, is who they are. They have the best Mad Men recap. I mean, there are a lot of good ones. Like, Molly Lambert is a really good story. I was going to say, it's funny how those people get snapped up because I was reading the Molly Lambert ones when she was at this recording. Right. And I was like, oh, she's like the best. And I was like, yep, someone noticed that. Yeah, Molly Lambert, Starly Kine. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of really good... I mean, recapping is... I don't get it. Like, I mean, I understand what it is, but it was never, that was never a need I had yeah. was to get a recap. But sometimes those recaps transcend recapness. They transcend synopsis. And I think that, you know, the Tom and Lorenzo thing, I haven't, I'm not, I'm catching up with Game of Thrones. So I haven't found like the brilliant Game of Thrones person. I don't know who that person, that person is out there. I don't know who that person is because I'm not reading them. But those guys do such a good job on that show and Molly does this too, of getting into what else? You know, I see what's on the surface, but what's what else? And Mad Men really is getting to your point to the to the I'm thinking like out loud with you about the answer to this question. Mad Men is that is the show where I feel like this season especially I'm not seeing very much of the subtext that other people are seeing. I think I like never see subtext, which is kind of why like rehab, recaps are kind of fascinating right, to me. Right. Because I'm like I'm not a I am not a person who catches the like Easter eggs right. at all. So the, reading these Mad Men recaps, I'm thinking two things. Man, these guys are brilliant. Yeah. And whoa. I was just watching TV. You know, like I was just watching Mad Men. I wasn't I wasn't as engaged with it as these guys are. And I there's a couple of like actual circumstantial explanations for that, like what time of day I'm watching yes. what I've recorded and that sort of thing. But I think we're at this point now where we really are like 
we are we are much more engaged with our culture, with our popular culture than we ever have been previously. And like it produces a lot of really interesting writing and it produces a lot of dreck. Yeah. And I think like I'm also discovering that one person's great writing is another is another person's dreck. Does that mean you're going to have to change what you do? I mean, I think about the fact that like. Like I like that site, um, the Dissolve, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I like the way that they cover film because they have like a VOD section mm-hmm. and they have a theatrical section. It's like, actually, I'm more uh, on the VOD side. I'll see. I'm going to go there first, just because mm-hmm. I know I'm not going to go to a movie tonight. And as this whole thing broadens, first with serial TV, way more VOD international stuff available. There's more to see than ever before. So when you talk about someone like Angelino Jolie, who's like truly an icon, we are in some ways sort of moving to a a broader watching culture Mm -hmm. does that change the equation for you at all in what sense like um do you want to cover different stuff and do you cover things differently because oh i'm not just covering the three theatrical releases i'm covering this whole spectrum of viewing possibilities yeah but i can't think about it that way i try not to think that broadly because then you kind of i try to take things on a on a thing to thing basis like movie Well, in this case, movies. I try to think about them on a movie to movie basis. Mm -hmm. And I want to like, you know, I'm I'm, this week I'm thinking about like, I really want to write about Jesse Eisenberg. I want to write about these two Jesse Eisenberg movies that are out that are both good. Yeah. And how interesting he is and how why nobody's talking about how Jesse Eisenberg has turned this really interesting corner into like, if you like Jesse Eisenberg right now is the time to see whatever he is doing because he is he's peaking. Yeah. Um. And so I know that in writing this piece, I get to write about two smaller movies that that need audiences, yeah, and don't have budgets for marketing, and are like worth seeing. That brings me to a more interesting question, which is: you've talked a lot about the sort of the subtext of this mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. and then there's this other super text, which is like how movies are actually made, how they're financed, how careers work in Hollywood. Mm. How much does that interest you as something to cover when you look at like, I think about like a piece like I think A.O. Scott wrote it, but I can't remember like about basically how the Chinese market is like oh, massively yeah. influencing how we make blockbusters. Yeah. Well, there's been a, there, there've been a number of good pieces. Yeah. I, that, I, I don't, he I don't, wrote was, about, he wrote about art and money. Yeah. So I'm interested like so much of how movies are made that now was a is, really good piece, is what, way. What gets made? What's get? What gets financed? What does that does that interest you? And 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 can that sort of mesh with a more subtextual analysis of, of film? Yes. Last summer was a summer that I couldn't stop thinking about why these movies were being made and where the money was coming from. Yeah. And like who they were being made for, and like why they were so weird. And like, if you've ever seen Chinese movies that have never opened in the U.S. They're so weird. Yeah. I mean, for, like compared to what we call entertainment, their priorities from a storytelling standpoint are totally different. Like beginning, middle and end. Eh, I don't care about that. <laughs> like just put Gong Li in the movie and just let it just see what happens. Yeah. Um, we don't value. We have different values. We have different cultural and art, aesthetic values when it comes to popular culture and art and entertainment. A lot of countries for decades, obviously, have been operating on an American model in terms of like what's popular and what the, what they'll go see. I mean, look at India. Look at a look at a Bollywood movie. Like, 
They're nothing like an American movie at all. They're not even like a Euro. They're, they're, they're their own thing. They have these sort of American qualities. They have yeah. like action. There's action and they're singing. I've always been led to believe that like Bollywood is like the basic narrative idea is it's okay if you only watch half the movie. <laughs> like make something that would be entertaining in a in a context where you're not going to watch the whole thing. Right. Those, I mean, and, and it's true in India, they don't stay. I mean, they come in and People out come and they, go, you yeah. know, they don't stay for the whole thing. But that's how their movies work. And, you know, it's funny because recently, if you look at the top 15 at the box office, many, many weeks, there is a Chinese language, there's a, some sort of, uh, some, some Mandarin or Cantonese movie yep. that's in the top 15, and there's some Bollywood movie that's in the top 15 almost every week. And there's an audience in this country that is being, that, you know, in the same way that black people felt grossly misunderserved until Tyler Perry came along. There are Spanish-speaking, Chinese-speaking, you know, there are Indian audiences that feel underserved and just want to go to the same movie theater that everybody else goes to, like the AMC 25, Yeah, you know, in Times Square, New York. They want to go watch a movie in their language that speaks to their culture just as much as, <laughs> I mean, God forbid, like, I mean, I'm not going to the AMC 25 to see X-Men because it speaks to my culture, but kind of, doesn't it? Yeah. You know what I mean? It speaks at least to, to my to my culture's film industry's production priorities, right? And it speaks to your youth, you know? Maybe it, in it, some it, ways. Yeah, it's, it speaks to a bunch of pop cultural beacons along but the way. But the larger question that you're asking is, yeah. no, it is not, there's nothing inherently American about X-Men. Right. It, X-Men is a global property. It is speaking to a lot of people's different industry priorities and movie-going priorities. And so there's nothing in some ways left for someone who wants to see, you know, an, an American movie that speaks to them. You know, this is why summer is a really interesting time to think about the mechanics of movie production and fall is a good time to just think about movies. When you want to talk about the mechanics, like how do you study that? Do you talk to people in Hollywood? I mean, I have conversations with film executives. I mean, I read Hollywood Reporter and Variety just to know like how, where the money came from. Right. I actually don't, I mean, it's useful to talk to those guys. I mean, the guys who actually make the movies, the Weinsteins and the um, Tom Bernards of the world, the Harvey Weinsteins and Tom Bernards of the world. But I also think that you can kind of figure it out. Like it's pretty transparent. I mean, not, I mean, in, in Weinstein and Bernard are two people who are operating in different ends of, of the movie exhibition and distribution and financing pool. What we're really talking about is these conglomerate, you know, the studios and the, and the, and the different avenues of money that goes into the big studios um, to produce something like an Avengers movie. And that is something that is, is interesting up to a point. And, it's quite obvious, for instance, when a movie is set in like four different cities for no reason at all, except the biggest, you know, audience for American movies is Tokyo. Yeah. So let's have a Chinese, let's have a Japanese actress in this movie and set some of it there. Let's go to China because that's number three, I think, in, according to like in 2012. Russia. I mean, it. Brazil. It's just, you know, I mean, it's... <laughs> The the sort of global randomness of a lot of these movies speaks to the either where the money's come from or where the audiences are. And they're not, increasingly, they're not in the United States. Or they're not as dominantly in the United States as they as they used to be. 
Um, and that's something to think about. I mean, a lot of people have written really smart things about why a lot of our big movies look the way they do and why you get fewer and fewer movies like American Hustle and Argo. Like just sort of middle, middle brow, not terribly, I mean, not, it's not that they're not artistic, but they're, you know, they're, they're middle, they're sort of adult movies basically i always consider those like seven like a 70s movie it's like yeah it's like a, a drama for adults right it's like that <laughs> american hustle came out every week as recently as like 1989 i know Do it, you know what i mean it's it was like it it's a big deal in 2013 because oh my god there's so few movies like it but american hustle with all due respect to it and david o russell like this is not about how good or not good American Hustle is. It's just about how different the American movie business's priorities were allowed to be as recently as 1989 or even like the early 90s. I play this game. I don't have cable and I miss the experience of like browsing cable. Yeah, randomly so turning on I a play a game with my girlfriend where we, we take turns in Netflix and you just have to put something on and start it in the middle and it has to be something you haven't seen that is also not supposed to be good. And the most consistent way to do it is to find a movie you liked on Netflix from the 70s or 80s, click on the director, and then click on their least known movie that you've never heard of mm-hmm. and start it in the middle. Mm. And they're so much better than most, like, it's pretty enjoyable. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's it's all pretty passable stuff. Uh, what are you thinking about? Um, what was I? What was I doing? Robert Altman's a really good one. I did that. Um, you know, what we landed on was um, three women. We landed on. Oh, this that's week. great! From and then beginning I had to, to end. Then I had to start it then because I was like, "This is awesome." Yeah, no, that's that's just really good. That might be my favorite Robert Altman movie, actually. Yeah, I mean, I I would not I would not hit the trapdoor button. But I wanted to ask you where where you go from here, like what, how you look at uh, this career, you know, from here till retirement age. <laughs> oh my God, you had Gary Smith on. He's like. He's retiring at 60. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I, I'm, I'm happy with where I am. Yeah. I kind of am eager to finish this book that I'm working on. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I keep bringing up the newspaper thing, and I feel like the newspaper thing, working in a newspaper is really important. It was important to me. I can't imagine myself without having worked at one. And the reason I bring that up is to say that it trains you to take one day at a time and to sort of work not look too far into the future and I like writing about movies right now and I'm fine to do it in the in the way that I'm doing it um I'm not seeing much farther down the road than that Grantland is the best possible work environment I could ever hope to have intellectually I get really good editing and the readerships beyond what I thought it would be um and I'm doing work I like and I like the work I'm doing. I haven't thought much more beyond that. I mean, I definitely think, I don't know. I'm not an ambitious person in that way. I mean, I really am not like, I, 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 I don't know what I've been offered things to do, but I don't want to do them. I'm really happy with where I am right now. And I think that, I mean, I'm open to, to, to other things, but I'm not at the moment. The, the real answer is I have a lot of things I want to do right now at Grantland that I would never be able to do at other places. And until I run out of those things to do, I'm I'm really happy with where I am. And as long as the site exists and it appears to be going strong, I'm I don't really want to go anywhere else. That's a that's a beautiful thought. Uh thank you very much for coming in, Wesley Morris. Thank you. Come back when you come great. come back when your book is out. <laughs> <laughs>
And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks to my guest, Wesley Morris. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Alinsky and Evan Ratliff. Our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern, Sarah Button. Hey, could you do something for me real quick like? Maybe you could fill out this survey. It's You're going to go to podsurvey.com slash longform. It takes like two or three minutes to fill out. It helps us. Uh, tell our advertisers how great our audience is. And if you fill out the survey, you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card, which we'll be giving away one every month. So podsurvey.com slash longform. Thanks. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.